Yeah. Hey, let me share something. And, uh, and that simply is, if you were not here yesterday and didn't get one of these handouts, uh, you can go back and pick one of them up back at the counter. Uh, here, Lane. Oh, well, I was going to give one to somebody who didn't have one. Okay, you, she got one at home. Okay. So I, we're going to run out of these, so we're not, they weren't just sitting out for all of you to grab a second copy. It's the same as you got yesterday if you were here yesterday. Uh, so I will tell you that the ABC does have our books there. Good news. I walked in and I looked last night. They ordered their material late enough that they have the new printing of our book, not the old printing. Which is important because it's more accurate than the older printing. We fixed a couple of things in there. Plus it has a three-page appendix at the end that deals with the 1290 and the 1335 that the first printing didn't have. It won't tell you if it's a first or second printing. They don't bother to put that on the book. But if, it's, if the last appendix deals with the 1290 and the 1335, you've got the newer copy. <laughs> so, uh, actually, you open the back cover, and if you don't have two or three white pages, you have the new copy. <laughs> and uh, also, let me tell you this. People always ask the question, what's the difference between the two kinds of DVDs that they have at the ABC? Here it is, really simple. There's a 10-hour version and a four-hour version. The four-hour version is comparable to what you're getting here. The 10-hour version is the public presentation. It goes into more detail. How do you know which one you should get? Here's how. If you're sharing this with people who understand Bible prophecy well and are Seventh-day Adventist, the four-hour one will be more interest, especially if they're Seventh-day Adventist, because I actually answer questions that Adventists ask in the four-hour presentation. However, if it's somebody who doesn't know Bible prophecy very well, the 10-hour is by far the better, and I explain lots of things. Today I'm going to talk about the United States and prophecy, and I'll take all of two or three minutes to do so. In the 10-hour one, I take a whole hour to explain that. All right? So that's the kind of differences. Uh, and based on that, you need to decide who's going to watch it and then decide which one you're going to get. If, perchance, you're interested in, in the 10-hour, I will tell you there's two ways to get the 10-hour. One is to buy it, and the other is to get it for free. The ABC loves this. Uh, <laughs> but the way you get it for free, you have to watch it on the Internet. And if you don't like watching it on the Internet, you've got to buy it. But if you, if the neat thing is people all over the Middle East are watching it by Internet. And uh, that's, that's the joy of the Internet. Yes, sir? No. By far, no. By far, no. No. The other one, remember, in the four-hour, I'm presenting to people who already have an understanding and I skip right over things that would be crucial. I will tell you that somebody who does not have an understanding of Bible prophecy will tell you at the end of 10 hours, I just got a drink out of a fire hose. It was too fast and too much. Yeah. 
So do not, I, I really encourage you, do not give somebody who doesn't understand prophecy well the four hour. Do not. Give it to them for free online. Buy a 10 hour whatever, give to them. Do not give them the four hour. Yeah. Adventists are always asking me what Ellen White has to say about something. Did you notice so far I haven't really said anything about Ellen White? This is a study from Scripture. Now, at the end of this, I am going to talk about a little segment on Ellen White and Daniel 11. That is in the four-hour, because I'm addressing questions Adventists have. But this is a Bible study-based understanding, and the ten-hour will never once mention her. Uh, you don't... Have, Really, it has nothing to do with it, but Adventists are always asking, what about Ellen White? So I actually come in, and that's in the four-hour presentation. Okay, let's have prayer and get rolling this morning. Oh, one last thing. If you would like a 13-14-page commentary instead of the little six-page one you've got, uh, sign up for our email updates, little cards in the back. Also, you will get a 12-page paper on the times of Daniel 11 and 12. Uh, that is new material. Um, BRI is still trying to figure out if they like it or don't like it. And interesting, they haven't jumped all over me for it, which means they don't really not like it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Biblical Research Institute is the BRI. And... <laughs> okay, my wife says I ate a blueberry, and I did. <laughs> Mm. No. <laughs> the lady up here says it's is there right in the middle. Okay. Anyway, we'll we'll try and work on that one. Oh, a two dollar discount today. Go for it, guys. I'm going to. All right, let's have prayer as we get rolling. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. And Lord, you promised to send the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in the truth. And Lord, that's exactly what we need in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, real quick summary. Uh, because we have new people here. Remember I told you, most people think they don't know who the kings of the north are. But if you know who these powers are, you know the kings of the north. Starts with Babylon, first king of the north in Daniel 2 and 7. Then it's Medo-Persia in Daniel 11. Goes to Greece, goes to Rome, goes to divided Rome during the time of the little horn. Ultimately, the last king of the north and the one and only true king of the north is Jesus Christ, the rock cut out without hands. If you know Daniel 2, you already really understand Daniel 11, even if you didn't know that. All right? So... <laughs> Adventists, I said, hey, who the king of the north is? I asked them if they know about Daniel 2. And they go, yeah. And I said, well, you know. You just didn't know you did. <laughs> so, the key, when major keys are, whenever, the, this is the Greek empire. It divides into two, well, four, but Daniel cares about two of the four. The Seleucids north, the Ptolemy south, getting centuries-long conflict with Jerusalem caught in the middle. From the beginning of the Greek Empire split to the end of it, 
It's Seleucid North, Ptolemy South. They de- the king of the north, king of the south, do not change identities during the divided Greek empire. That's a huge piece of information. Because now when you split the Roman Empire, you split Roman North is Christian, Roman South is Islam. If at the division of the Roman Empire, 5th century, 6th century, particular 6th century, the papacy becomes dominant in Rome, Islam becomes dominant in the South, which city gets caught in the middle just like the Greek split? Jerusalem. Notice we're replaying the Greek split. And if you identify Islam at the beginning and papal-led Christianity in the beginning of the Roman split, that is going to continue to the end of the divided Roman Empire. And when does that end? At the coming of Jesus Christ. What other two powers that are both geopolitical and spiritual have been in conflict since the 6th century? Islam and Christianity. What other two besides those two? I mean, this is pretty simple stuff when you really think about the history. It's the only two that could fit. Why we keep trying to make other things fit is beyond me when we have two that fit all the way through. And so, next, remember I said it's not just geopolitical, it's also spiritual. You take the day of worship. King of the North, Sunday. Jerusalem or Israel, Sabbath. King of the South, God's people are caught where? In the middle. Geopolitically, Jerusalem's caught in the middle. Spiritually, God's people of faith are caught in the middle everywhere in the world. Uh, I was doing a presentation at a Filipino church down in Orlando, and I was talking to one of the elders just before we went on, and we were talking a little bit. He starts laughing. He said, King of the North, King of the South, that sounds like the Philippines. He said, the Catholics have control of the Northern Islands, and the Muslims have control of the Southern Islands. And we get caught in the middle everywhere. <laughs> so, now, we're picking up where we dropped off yesterday. Daniel 11, verses 29 to 39. The second conflict. The first conflict, 23 through 28, were the Crusades. Arab Islam versus papal-led Christianity. Now we have Ottoman Islam versus papal-led Christianity. And so we have the Ottoman Empire come in. Uh, Islam had grown, but now we have the Ottomans come in, and they swing in, they take Constantinople, push into Europe. And the papacy almost thought it was good news for a little bit because it wiped out the Eastern Church. But then the Muslims didn't stop. They kept coming. And the papacy organizes the resistance of the Holy Roman Empire to stop the Ottoman Empire push into Europe. Now, I want to do something. There's a very striking parallel between Islam and the papacy. You take a look. You've been through prophecy seminars where we go through and we identify the little horn, the uh, or the beast, as the papal system. Not the Roman Catholic people, but the papal system. Well, if you carefully go through that and take a look at Islam as well, Islam is not the little horn, it is not the beast, but it is almost like it. Take a look. Antichrist in the New Testament means one who is in place of or against Christ. The the Greek word anti means in place of or against. 
the papacy is in place of Christ. Islam is against the divinity of Christ. Does the papacy deny the divinity of Christ? No. They just put themselves in his place. Islam denies the divinity of Christ. So they both work against Christ's true ministry. Also, they persecute God's people. Now, if you take a look at the papal system, during the Inquisition, during all this time period, the Crusades, who does the papal system persecute? Jews, Muslims, and Christians that don't agree with them. Now let's take a look at something else. Let's take a look at Islam. During this time period, who do Muslims persecute? Christians, Jews, and Muslims who don't agree with them. Did you just notice they're the same three groups of people? So what's the big difference? If you're God's person, you get caught in the middle. By the way, during the Dark Ages, if I'm up in Europe and I'm sharing uh, God's word in the common language and asking people to trust Jesus for their salvation, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die rather soon. Much of the Muslim world during that time, that could happen. Actually, you were a little safer in part of that time period in the Muslim world than you were in the Christian world. But in today's world, there are parts of the Muslim world that you do that, you're dead. So again, my point is, what's the big difference? So far at this point, I've only been on the wrong end of machine guns because a Catholic priest got mad at me. Um, so, I had a Muslim tell me I better be careful because the Christians were going to kill me for what I was saying. And I just tell them when I'm in the ki- territory of the King of the North, I'm going to watch out for the North. If I'm in the territory of King of the South, I'm going to watch out for the South. There's not a lot of difference to me. Receives the dragon seat. The papacy gets the capital of the Roman Empire, right? Rome. How many capitals of the Roman Empire were there? Two. Because Constantine moved from Rome and set up Constantinople. Who gets Constantinople? It's the capital of the, it's the caliphate capital under the Ottoman Empire of the whole Muslim world. So the papacy rules geopolitically and spiritually out of Rome. Islam rules geopolitically and spiritually out of Istanbul, Constantinople. Two capitals of the Roman Empire, they both get one. Coincidence? <laughs> I doubt it. God set this up. Time prophecies. 1260 days of rule for the papal system. Okay. Um, I'm not going there. (laughs) In uh, Arab Islam, Revelation 9, as our pioneers and others have taught, in the back of our book, from the 11th century through the 1930s, we list how the different commentators understood the first and second woes of Daniel 9, or Revelation 9. Arab Islam for 150 years of expansion. Second woe, Turkish Islam, 391 days, years and 15 days. Josiah Litch predicted August 11, 1840 is when they would come down. Now, Josiah Litch went to his grave thinking he was a failure on that. For a while he thought he had it, Then he went to his grave thinking as a failure because the Ottoman Empire continued. What he didn't know 
or to understand is that based on Daniel's principles, when does an empire go down when it ceases to exist or when it loses its power? Well, they lost their power just when he said. When they sign an agreement with the European powers to become a protectorate of Europe, have they just lost their powers? From that time on, they were the sick man of the East, is what they were called, up until the end of World War I. Uh, oh, I'm going to throw something out. I said I wouldn't go there, but I will. Uh, based on an Arab calendar, the year 1260 falls in 1844. I, now, the Arab calendar is not is based on a short year. That's why Ramadan can come up at different times of different years, okay? And so it's not really 1260 years from when Muhammad started. It's shorter than that, but because they have a short year, a lunar year, 1260 of their years just happens to fall in 1844. Uh, I have no idea what the actual implications of that are. I just had a Baha'i lady point that out to me a couple of months ago. <laughs> uh, if, if you can figure out all the meanings of that, let me know. <laughs> Why did God allow these invasions against Christianity? In Revelation 20, uh, 9, verses 20 and 21, it will actually tell you it's because they began to worship images. What happened in Old Testament Israel when the, God's Israel in the Old Testament worshipped images? In would come in the Moabites, the Midianites, and everybody else, right? Even the, even the people from Babylon were Abraham's re- relatives because he came from where? Ur, of the Chaldeans. And so God always sent in these Abrahamic relatives to give them grief when they weren't following God's way. And so when the church, his New Testament Israel, is no longer following his way and they start erecting images in the church and worshiping them and being spiritual adultery, what does he do? In comes the spiritual descendants of Ishmael, Abrahamic family, to punish them, discipline them for what they've done wrong. God is consistent Old and New Testament. And so... That's why he sent them in. And it says, but it wouldn't change anything. Did it change anything? No. Still have those images, don't we? But Muhammad really hated image worship. And uh, that's what he really had. Now, in Revelation 9, our, our pioneers saw the first row and second row as being Islamic. Arab Islam, Ottoman Islam. Logically, the third row should be Islamic. But the third row is not that easily deciphered in Revelation. However, in Daniel, there are three conflicts between the north and the south following the Roman Empire. And in one verse, it points out the three conflicts. Here it is in verse 29. At the appointed time. Uh, Right before we get done, it'll either be tomorrow or Friday, I forget which in the schedule, I'm going to be talking what the appointed time is. If any of you have a Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary, 
I encourage you to take a look between now and then and see what the commentary says the appointed time is in verse 29. Just see if somebody can find out. And it says, At the appointed time he shall return and go towards the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. How many times are there? There's the former one, there's the appointed one, and there's the latter one. We have how many? Three. How many ways are there? The former, the first one, is the Crusades, verses 23 through 28. The appointed time happens to be the time of the Reformation in the Ottoman Empire. So that's the Ottomans. The third one is the time of the end. Get this. First woe, first conflict, Arab Islam and the Crusades. Second woe, second conflict, Ottoman Empire. Third woe, somewhere right at the time of the end. And according to Daniel, it's the same two players, Islam and the papal-led Christianity. So that's interesting. Here's what Patrick Buchanan said back in 2011. As for a climatic conflict between a once-Christian West and an Islamic world that is growing in numbers and advancing inexorably into Europe for the third time in 14 centuries, on this one, Brevik may be right. Now, which number of conflicts does Patrick Buchanan think we're entering based on his study of history? He's saying we're entering third. And how long? 14 centuries. Takes you back up to when? The breakup of the Roman Empire. Whoa. In other words, the history, even a secular person looking at it just simply as history from a news perspective, can recognize we're entering the third conflict since the breakup of the Roman Empire. What he doesn't know is we are entering the third and final conflict between Islam and Christianity. Isn't that good news? And the better news is the first two were long, drawn-out conflicts. The third one will be very short when it breaks loose. And it hasn't fully broken loose yet. Uh, It also talks about a deadly wound being healed. Revelation 13.3, and all the world followed the beast. That it had a deadly wound. Well, I did something one time. I decided to graph out the power curve of the papacy. Starting when Berthier sets them up in Rome in 538, going all the way down to 1798 when, I don't know, Berthier took them down. It was uh, Belisarius set them up, 538. Berthier, French general, takes him down in 1798. That's 1,260 years. Then in 1929, Mussolini signs a concordat with the papacy. They once again have control of the little Vatican state, and they've been growing in power ever since. By the way, you're familiar with what was going on down in South America just recently with the Pope. Three million people showing up for an outdoor mass. Uh, Is there any... any kind of power involved in somebody being able to draw three million people for an event? And, you know, if there were three million people here, it would be making news, wouldn't it? Uh, So they're growing in power. They hit their pinnacle of power, highest ever, just before the return of Christ. And during the plagues, they go from their highest power to nothing by the end of it. And gone. So there's the power curve of the papacy. Now let's take a look at the power curve of Islam. Uh, It is rather dramatically similar. From 612 
you have the rise of Arab Islam. They weakened at the time of the Crusades. Then the Ottomans come in. They're even more powerful. They come down by 1840. They get weaker and weaker. And by 1948, it's kind of a low point for Islam. Uh, Jewish state is established. What an insult to their way of thinking. They were going to push Israel into the sea on their first day of existence. They still haven't got that done. And so, by the way, that's one of the big challenges for the peace process. How do you have a peace treaty when they're on record as saying they're going to wipe out the Israelis? That's a really tough thing to work out a peace treaty on. And uh, so we're headed in, and then there's a third conflict, and then we're going to find that Islam drops off just before the uh, coming of Christ, and it leaves one power only at the end. Well, there is an overview of, of the three conflicts, and very similar power curves, aren't they? Also, we're going to now look at the time at the end and the coming holy war. I know I'm moving right along, but uh, our time is moving. Let's take a careful look. Let me share this. In verses 29 to 39, the basic overall view is a focus on the, on the Reformation, where people would do great exploits for God, and as a result, they would be killed by the sword and by the flame. How are reformers killed? Whole villages put to the sword. What happens to their leaders? Burned at the stake. I mean, you take a look at 29 to 39 and you will see very clearly. Yes, there is a one couple of mentions, 2930, of a conflict with the South. But the focus wasn't on the Ottoman Empire at this point. It was on what was happening in the Reformation. All right? Now we go to verse 40, which is the time of the end, the latter conflict. And we're going to read this one. At the time of the end, when I talk about the times of Daniel 11, I'm going to explain when the time of the end is. Uh, let me just share it this way. I believe the time of the end is truly 1844. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Based on Daniel 11, who attacks first? king of the south. We're talking holy war. We're not talking just military conflict. And at this point, Islam, radical Islam, I should be clear, radical Islam has declared jihad or holy war on those who are not radically Muslim. And so there is already a holy war, just like at the time of the Crusades was a holy war, just like at the Ottoman Empire was a holy war, Radical Islam has declared holy war at this point. Has the Christian world declared holy war back yet? No. By the way, here's a simple proof. Some people say, well, that started in 2001, September 11. No, it didn't. Because it says it's going to be a radical, fast conflict. Ah, there are fewer Christians today in Egypt, Iraq, and Afghanistan and many other places than there were in 2001. If it's a Christian holy war where the Christians clean up quick, it sure is going backwards at the moment. It's still in the king of the south pushing stage. We have not yet reached the retaliation from the north. Now let's keep reading. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. 
If a tornado hit, how long would it take to wipe out this tent? You guys ever been in a tent during a tornado? I have been in a tent while the tornado sirens were blowing. It was a bigger tent than this one. And it had a great big round post in it, two or three of them. And I and another guy were dancing with those posts. We used bobcats to move them and to line them up, ramming the bottoms of them. I mean, there was thousands of pounds of pressure on those tent posts. When that tornado went over without touching down, but as it went over, I had one, he had one, and the bases of those things were floating about this high off the ground. Our goal was to not get between them and the ground when they came down, but to get them to come back down on those wooden things so that they didn't stick down on the ground, and then it was going to be really pain to line them back up. And we're in there, and we're watching a creek right outside the tent, thinking if the tornado comes down, we're diving into the water, the lowest thing around here. (laughs) It doesn't take long for a tornado to do damage, folks. And so it says it's like a whirlwind. It's going to be really quick when it hits. Not there yet. Now notice the military language that it uses. With chariots, horsemen, and many ships, and he shall enter countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. When a military hits a country, overwhelms it, and goes out the other side, is it a long fight or a short fight? Like a whirlwind, and it's short military. Good news. The third and final one isn't going to be a long fight when it breaks loose. Continuing, he, the king of the north, shall also enter the glorious land. That was Israel all the way through Daniel. I see no reason not to think it's Israel at this point. So he enters the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Edom, Moab, and Ammon no longer exist as nations. There's only remnants of them left. Keep that in mind. I purposely use the term remnants left because there are only bits and pieces left. And the prominent people of Ammon, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt, Egypt does exist, shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. I want you to notice something very clearly. At the end of this time, uh, not the time prophecy, at the end of this prophecy, Daniel is naming names. At the beginning of this prophecy, when he said Persia, he meant what? When he said Greece, he meant, I have this sneaking suspicion, when he says Egypt, he actually means Egypt. Libya means Libya. Ethiopia means Ethiopia. Hmm. Hmm. I've had people tell me, you can't say a country means what it says it means. Well, in Revelation, this same power is also called Babylon, right? Now, keep in mind, Babylon was the first king of the north. When Revelation uses the term Babylon, it's just telling you it's the king of the north. But, when Babylon fell the first time, It was under a Persian leader by the name of Cyrus. And well before he was ever born, Isaiah had predicted by name 
who is going to take Babylon down. Now, if God can predict by name who's going to do things back then, what would keep him from doing it today? It's impossible now, but he could then? Huh. It's the same God. Now, here's why I believe he does it by name all of a sudden. I was on a talk show. Every once in a while I get lucky enough that we stir up controversy coming in the town and I get put on radio talk shows or television programs and stuff like that. And uh, it's always an adventure. <laughs> but in this particular time, a guy calls in and he says, all you Bible prophecy guys are alike. It's all symbolic stuff. And you say it means this and he says it means that. Nobody really knows. I said, you know, I understand your point. I said, however, you don't know Daniel 11 very well. Because in Daniel 11, Persia means Persia and Greece means Greece. And it was fulfilled exactly as he said. And at the last part of the prophecy, Egypt means Egypt. It says Egypt and it means Egypt. And Libya means Libya. And Ethiopia means Ethiopia. And friend, it either is what it says it is or it isn't. But it, everything is shaping up to be exactly what it says it is. By name. No symbols involved here, friend. He goes, oh. And he hung up. I have a question. If you were God, and the world thinks this is a bunch of fairy tales, it's just a bunch of symbols, it's like Nostradamus, it could mean anything if you twist it. How would you get through to the last generation right before the loud cry? You name names. You name names. And I believe that's exactly what God has done here for us. And... Uh, that's the value of Daniel 11. It's why I believe it's the prophecy for the end time. And by the way, this is the prophecy that set in verse Daniel 12, verse 4. It says it will be understood at the time of the end. It's the prophecy for the end time. It says so. That's, that's not an implication that I came up with. So let's keep going. Um, we have this third conflict. It's going to be short, leaving only the king of the north. And it's going to have the loud cry coming right after the fall. The papacy is, and here's where this slide represents a whole hour on the 10-hour set, okay? But m most Seventh-day Adventists have studied history or prophecy from the historicist viewpoint enough that you know that the United States is the one who matches the second beast of Revelation 13. The one who is the enforcer for the papal system. Now get this. During the Crusades, does the papacy have its own army? Or does it borrow armies from all over Europe? Borrows armies from around Europe. During the Ottoman conflict, does the papacy have its own army? Does it borrow armies and, and organize them? It borrows and organizes. At the end conflict, if you're the papal system... Do you have an army? No. By the way, who's the security force at the Vatican? Swiss guards. They borrow the Swiss guards at the Vatican. They've always borrowed military force. If you don't have an army, you can get away with being called the man of peace, even if there's 50 to 80 million people that have been killed under your rule. Because technically, you can always say other people did it. Of course, they were following directions of the leader, but other people did it. And so, if you're the Vatican, 
Which military would you most like to have? The United States. Now, if you're not understanding why I'm talking about the United States, go to our website, take a look at Program 3, the third presentation, the United States in the coming conflict. And we'll explain it there. But you have the United States becoming the enforcer for the King of the North. You also have the papal system getting the support of the Ten Horns. Well, when, Europe, when the Roman Empire broke apart, the Ten Horns were the European part of the empire who backed the papacy. If you have those Ten Horns right at the time of the end throwing their power and support behind the papacy again, you simply have Europe throwing its power behind the papacy again. Just really simple. If you have the United States and Europe all under the direction of the papal-led Christianity, you really have NATO there, friends. That's NATO versus Islam. And that could be a very mean short fight if everything broke loose. So just kind of keep that one in mind for the military force. Uh, so we have Islam pushing against the papal-led Christianity and papal-led Christianity comes back and people are asking, well, could it happen? Let me throw this in. If the Muslim world looks at the United States as a Christian nation, they look at European nations as a Christian nation, and whenever they think about Christianity, they think uh, what you call Christianity or what the Catholic version. Which way do they think? They think Catholic version. They think crusaders. Hmm. So, that's of interest. They already see Christianity as under papal-led Christianity. That's what they already see. You're in the middle of it, and you don't see what they see from a distance. Well, people ask, could it really happen? Could we have a third and final short conflict? Uh, years ago, when I first started this, people were still doubtful of it. But events 2011, that, I mean 2001 didn't change very many people's minds. But about five, six years ago, there began to be a ground change in people's opinions where it was from maybe it could happen to it's more likely going to happen than not going to happen. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Maybe it was just the length of time this thing kept drawing on and on. And they were just beginning to feel inevitable. Well, I'm going to share... Uh, Let's take a quick look back at it again and ask, could it happen? At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. He shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries. The land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his hands. So, now, going to get back to this one. Uh, could it happen? I had a break there, and I just had a little bit of an overlap. Sorry about that. The break had been taken out for you guys today. Uh, could it happen? This is back in, right after Osama bin Laden was killed. Would taking out the major leader of radical Islam put an end to radical Islam? I don't know if you've noticed, Western powers have a centralized government. You take out the leader of the United States, the United States is in trouble. 
you take out the leader of any radical Islamic group and it's just no big deal because it's decentralized, decentralized leadership. You cannot take out the command control of Al-Qaeda or radical Islam because it's everywhere. You know, it doesn't rely on commands from any central location. Here's the interesting statement. The leader of the Al-Qaeda offshoot that U.S. officials have called the greatest threat to the U.S. vowed in a message posted on Islamist website Wednesday to take revenge against the U.S. for the death of Osama bin Laden, saying that jihad would only intensify and that Americans would come to wish for the days of Osama. So in other words, they're hoping that if they can pull off what they want to pull off, that you will look back and you will think September 11, 2001 was a good day in comparison to some days that are yet future. All right? Uh, I have a question. If there was a radical Islamic attack that made September 11 look like a good day, would the people of the U.S. and the people of Europe say, let's keep doing the things we've always done in the Middle East, or would they say it's time to clean up? I know lots of Christians who say, let's just turn any radical area into a parking lot with a nuclear weapon. What has kept NATO forces from doing that kind of thing? It's called collateral damage. You see, NATO has been reluctant to have high numbers of civilian casualties of men, women, and children. Radical Islam doesn't care. They target those kind of people with their bombs. Not just in Europe and the United States, but in the Islamic world. I mean, more Muslims are dying at the hands of Muslims right now, too, if you don't notice. There are still lots of bombings going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. And those are mostly Muslims getting killed in those bombings. So, we have this thing continuing. Jihad intensifying. And sooner or later, there, oh, so what is kept, collateral damage has kept us back. But jihadists, don't care about men, women, and children dying. Why? Because in a holy war, if you guys are against those guys, they're all of the devil. It doesn't matter if they're men, women, or children. They're of the devil. You can kill everybody in a holy war. And since they've decided that you're now all of the devil, they can kill men, women, and children over here. It doesn't matter. You see, a holy war is the most unholy of all wars. Once it hits that, if NATO doesn't care about civilian damages, they really don't care. And they can use any weapon they have. Can you see how it be really fast? Once it becomes a holy war, look back at your history of the Crusades and the Ottomans, and history tends to repeat itself. Oh, we're more civilized than we were then. <laughs> uh, look at Hiroshima. Look at the Bosnian-Yugoslavia conflict. Look at what's going on in the Middle East right now. Look at Germany, 1940s. We really are more civilized than they were before? No. We just have bigger, meaner weapons to w work with. You don't have to look in somebody's face while you kill them now. You push a button and they die on a continent away. Now that's more civilized. I don't have to watch it happen. Anyway, that's where we're headed. Now let me illustrate to you how fast things could change. There's a guy by the name of Ramsey Yosef, Al-Qaeda operative, who's now serving a life sentence for murder. But 
Ramsey Yeo's story is quite revealing. 1993, he was the bomb maker for the World Trade Center bombing, blew a big hole in the parking garage. He, right after that bombing, he escaped, went to Pakistan. From Pakistan, 1995, he heads for the Philippines for the Bajinga plot, where he was going to attack Pope John Paul II and kill him in a dramatic way, and he was stopped accidentally eight days before killing John Paul II. Here was the plan. He had a group of suicide bombers that were going to have bomb vests on under Roman Catholic priest robes. During the World Youth Day Parade, when there was going to be a million plus, three million last week, down in South America, uh, how easy is it to run security in a meeting like that? Twice the Pope got outside of his security areas this last time. His little vehicle made a wrong turn. And all of a sudden he's got a ring of (laughs) two people wide security around him and millions of people. Folks, that's not much security. (laughs) And their plan was, dressed as Roman Catholic priests, as the Pope is coming along the parade route, they would be able to get close as priests and they would come in close, they would detonate, intending to kill the Pope, a large number of Roman Catholic dignitaries, and lots of people on the parade route on live television for the world to see. Could that have a possibility of being just a might destabilizing? Mm-hmm. Could it lead towards holy war? Oh, yeah. Now, just to make sure of this, there were two parts of the plan. The second part was Ramsey Joseph and a couple other guys. While that, they weren't even going to be there while that was happening. They're not suicide bombers. They were going to be on a series of airplane flights, and they would reach under the lower blanket over the lap, reach under the seat, pull out the little life vest, drop it in their carry-on luggage, pull out of their carry-on luggage some liquids, mix them together, put a watch on it for a timer, slide it under the seat, fold up the blanket. That's a little bomb they just put under their seat. They're not suicide bombers. They get off the plane they have left a small bomb directly over the center fuel tank. Their little bomb is a detonator for the fuel tank, which is the big bomb that will take down the airplane. They were each going to do three or four airplanes. Then they were going to fly on the Pakistan. Meanwhile, the Pope has been assassinated, and all these planes that they've set bombs on would be flying back to the Philippines, most of them to the Philippines, where they'd be loaded up with very angry, upset Roman Catholics. They would take off, and their plan was to have somewhere between 12 and 14 airliners simultaneously disintegrate over the ocean, full of mostly Roman Catholics. A one-two punch. Oh, it was attack against the papacy, and every one of those airliners was going to be owned by a United States-owned company. What two do they have special aim at? Papacy in the U.S. They see them as linked. Isn't that interesting? Since Revelation links the two. Eight days before the event, Ramsey Yosef was in his kitchen mixing bomb-making materials. He made a mistake. It didn't blow up. It made a smoky fire. He ran, which was a smart thing to do if you're in a bomb-making factory and you started a fire. And uh, especially if you're not a suicide bomber. (laughs) And... uh, the fire department came in. They came in to fight a kitchen fire. They did not know they were coming into a bomb-making factory. They were successful in getting the fire out. But by the time they had the fire out, they knew they weren't putting out a kitchen fire. There were bomb vests hanging on the walls ready to go. 
there's a computer there that they're rather interested in. And inside the computer, they have the full plans for the Bojinga plot. And they have all the materials there that go with it. Ramsey Yosef, he's now on a plane to Pakistan before they figure out what's going on. He's gone. He gets arrested there by some special ops type guys. And uh, he's now serving a life sentence in the United States. Um, so, oh, other, other point of interest on that computer was were plans for hijacking airplanes in the U.S. and crashing them into buildings. 1995. We just didn't know when and where. It didn't say those kind of things. And, you know, I could come up with all kinds of threats. There's all kinds of things I would do if I was a terrorist and I was talking to a military intelligence officer one time about things I would do as I was a terrorist. He said, do me a favor. Don't tell people those ideas. <laughs> so I won't. But there's a lot of really simple things you could do, and they know about, but they're very hard to defend against. Um, anyway, why do they want to do this? Many of them believe in the 12th Imam. Oh, let me back up. How... How long would it have taken to possibly go into a holy war back then if that would have happened? I would suggest to you that you could be in a full-scale holy war within 48 hours. Within any 48 hours, you could be in a full-scale holy war between Christianity and radical Islam. However, you also need to know that there's no time prophecy involved in this and you may die of old age first. It could be this week. It could be after your death. You have to be ready for either one. And guess what, friends? If you're trusting Jesus Christ, you are ready for either one. <laughs> so, uh, but keep trusting Jesus and following his word. All right? But why would some of these folks be interested in stirring up a holy war? Well, partially it's because of what some of them believe about the 12th Imam. You see, Christians believe in Jesus as a Messiah. Jews have a coming Messiah that they are hoping for. And Islam has a Messiah that they're looking forward to. He is the 12th Imam. A little boy who in the 10th century went down into a well, who Muslims, especially Shias, uh, would believe will come back up in a time of great chaos. Rest, and by the way, I realize that I'm not following every belief of Islam when I'm explaining this. If you were to explain the coming of Jesus Christ in a couple of sentences and try and cover all Christian beliefs on that, <laughs> you're going to miss partially, aren't you? So I'm just giving you an overall summary. So there's this time of chaos. The 12th Imam is going to come back on the scene. He's going to rescue Islam from the chaos. And then he's going to bring Jesus back with him. And Jesus will help you as Christians become Muslims. And he will make all the world become Islamic. And then you will have an Islamic world state. Okay. There you have it. The 12th Imam in a very short version. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, if you're a radical Muslim that believes in the 12th Imam and you want him to come and he's going to come in a time of great chaos, what do you need to stir up? Khomeini, the commander-in-chief in Iran, the holy man, Ahmadinejad was in agreement, at least in this point, with him. Ahmadinejad thought it was his role in life to usher in the 12th Imam. 
So when they make these statements that lead to chaotic situations and your oil prices go up every time they make those chaotic statements, uh, you know, we, we have no purpose to develop nuclear weapons. It's just for peaceful use. Of course we have every right to create nuclear weapons. You get statements like that in the same week. Uh, it's chaotic statements. And uh, we're a peaceful nation and we're going to close the states, Straits of Hormuz. Your oil prices go up. It's chaos. I have the sneaking suspicion if they actually had nuclear weapon to use, they would use it to create chaos. And by the way, if you're an Iranian, you're in big time trouble. Because you have leadership that doesn't care if you can win the last war, you just need to start it and the 12th Imam will save you. What would you think if you were in a country that's not the superpower of the world, but is looking to start a fight even if you can't win it? But if you object, what's going to happen to you? You're going to get killed. And so the people of Iran, they can object and die now, or just let it go and hope that these powers get wiped out before they get their country into this war. Your chances of living longer are going with not fighting now, if you're inside the country. You think we have problems with our political system. The Iranians really have trouble. But you have the 12th Amman believers. Now, take a look at Mary. Oh, so obviously you have people within Islam that are getting set up for holy war, creating chaos to bring in their Messiah. Then there's Mary. The book Thunder of Justice, written in the 1990s, page 342-343. This is a Catholic book. It's not from the church. It's from a group of uh, lay people. And they have a group of Mary statements from Mary. Mary would show up in a, what they call Marian apparitions, where one or two spiritual people can see and hear. Not everybody that's there, but just a few people hear and see. And how do you know that they're really happening? You don't. But... Look at this statement from Mary. There will be a World War III, and it will be started by a man who wears the turban of the faith, a Muslim. Yet there is a more powerful one to rise in Syria. When this one has accomplished his work, he will cause destruction and pain and great persecution. The red will flow into the sea, and there will be nothing to eat. Now I have a question. What's going on in Syria right now? Now, you think about what's going on in Syria for a moment. Uh, Assad, not exactly a friendly character, nor was his father. I remember as a young man, when I first started being aware of current events, uh, it made me sick to my stomach. I just picked up a Newsweek magazine or whatever, and up in the front they had this little tiny thing with paragraphs that give you synopsis of what was going on in the world. There had been a political disturbance in Syria, and 20,000 people had been killed. And all it made in Time Magazine or Newsweek Magazine was this one little paragraph thing. Syria's been a bloody place for quite a while uh, under Assad and his father. So now uh, we have things getting really bad. And you have the uh, Arab Spring come in and then you have revolution started in Syria. And as long as the revolutionaries were holding their own, uh, the Europeans and the U.S. were just making statements encouraging them. But did you notice what happened as soon as 
the rebel forces began to lose? Some very interesting things were happening. At that point, Al-Qaeda was taking over in Syria for the rebel forces. When the rebel forces start losing, the European nations and the United States decide it's time to start sending lethal aid. And who do they send it to? Al-Qaeda. You think about that one for a little bit. So when and European powers are now funneling aid into the rebels, Al-Qaeda, we got serious about that when they started losing the edge. It's almost like we're trying to hold the balance there to get radical Muslims fighting Shias on one side, Sunnis on the other, where they're killing each other. And as long as you can hold it balanced, it's a bloody battlefield where the United States and Europe don't even need to send troops. We just let them kill each other. You just watch that one happening. And Benghazi, Libya, was probably about gathering arms and weapons up in Libya and sending them to the revolutionaries in Syria. And there was a double cross that happened and somebody got mad. That's probably what happened in Benghazi. And since it wasn't legal, it got buried. Now, I don't know that to be true. But while talking to uh, senior military intelligence officers, I told him what I thought happened there, and he wouldn't make a comment for or against. And about two minutes later, he just looked at me and smiled and said, by the way, you have good instincts. (laughs) So I don't know if that's true, but it has more probability than any of the other stories I've seen out there especially when you see what's happening now, uh, a little ways down the line. So that's just interesting. Now keep looking. The Antichrist is going to arise from the Mohammedan race, a Muslim. Here is Roman Catholic Mary saying that the Antichrist is who? A Muslim. She's pointing her finger at Islam. Convenient. The main focus, the little horn, the beast, is saying, look at them for the Antichrist. Very convenient. By the way, Wally Shubat. Anybody recognize that name? Wally Shubat. Joel Richardson. Joel Rosenberg. Maybe a little recognition there. These are all people that are now seeing Islam as the Antichrist from the evangelical world. And friends, they're the big movers now in prophecy in the evangelical world. Roman Catholic Mary, Islam's the Antichrist. Protestants, Islam's the Antichrist. Uh Uh-huh. If Islam is the Antichrist to the Christian world, you now have reason to kill men, women, and children because it's a holy war. Jihad, you can kill men, women, and children because it's a holy war. The table has been set for the third conflict. Uh, Continuing. He's going to have a turban. The people will call to Eye of Satan. He will be young, wearing a long robe. He will be very intelligent, well-equipped for nuclear war. Worse than Hitler, connected with communists, fire rockets at us, and some will hit New York City. This was written in the 1990s. Now, 
Think for a moment. Iran's push for nuclear weapons. Who's protected them from sanctions? China and Russia. Mary said it was going to be communists backing them up. Who gives them the technology? North Korea. Oh, how much technology does Iran have? Good question. But there was a slip in some congressional hearings when some classified information was stated by a congressman. He thought it had been released. (laughs) As soon as he said it, the whole intelligence community said, that's not true. If you have the whole intelligence committee jumping all over itself to say that's not true when he accidentally quoted them, (laughs) you know it's pretty true. (laughs) Uh, And what he simply said was, there was a recent test, nuclear test in North Korea of a miniaturized, possibly a miniaturized nuclear weapon. And what he said is that it is now believed by the intelligence community that North Korea has the capabilities of a nuclear-mounted warhead. They had tested a miniaturized nuclear weapon. And he was reading from a Pentagon document and then everybody in the Pentagon and the CIA and everything denies it. Well, guess who was in North Korea during that test? Iranian scientist. Guess who works in Iran in the nuclear labs? North Korean scientist. So whatever North Korea has, Iran probably has. And so it's only a matter of time when they decide to turn their stockpiles into a weapon. They probably have the technology. So all of this stuff is sitting right there. Now, do I believe Mary's such a great prophet? No. Mary's waiting for the resurrection. But Satan knows prophecy. He knows there's a third conflict coming on. And he knows that Revelation 11 has a parallel to Islam and it's the power that comes out of the French Revolution, atheistic communism. And I'll share that in the last presentation and how those two fit together. And so all he does is he takes a look at this and goes, duh, I can make my own prophecies based on the Bible. And it makes Mary look like she's really smart. All it is is a tweaking of Daniel 11 and Revelation 11 so that the papal system can rally its forces against radical Islam. And it helps stir up the forces of radical Islam as well. Here's what Charles Malik said. He was a uh, Lebanese Orthodox Christian, becomes a politician. He is a, at one point when he said the following, he was president of the UN General Assembly. He is also uh, ambassador from Lebanon to the United States, and he was speaking at Harvard when he said this. The only hope for the Western world lies in an alliance between the Roman Catholic Church, which is the most common influential controlling and unifying element in Europe, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Rome must unite with the Eastern Orthodoxy because Eastern Orthodox Church controls the Western Middle East. If they don't solidify that control, Islam will march across Europe. Islam is political. The only hope of the Western world lies in a united Europe under the control of the Pope. Now, in the 1400s, as Islam was marching on Constantinople, they take Constantinople in 1453, 
as they're coming in, the papal-led Christianity, the Christian West, sat back and watched while the Eastern Orthodox Church got nailed in Constantinople. This time, Charles Malik is saying we should learn a lesson from history. As Islam begins its march in the third conflict, all Christians, Orthodox and Western, should come under supremacy of the Pope. Because who was the leader against Islam in the Crusades? Who was the leader against Islam during the Ottomans? Who is he saying should be the leader against Islam in the third conflict? By the way, if you hate Muslims, you're likely to follow the Pope. I don't care what church you're coming from. It said all the world follows the papacy. Why? Because they don't like radical Islam. Do Hindus like radical Islam? You go stand on the border between Pakistan and India and see what it's like. Islam on one side, Hindus on the other. They do not like each other. Russia has its own problems with radical Islam. It's called Chechnyans. A whole bunch of Americans finally figured that out this spring when they blew up the world, uh, the Boston Marathon. But yeah, in Russia, they blew up the school, the theater, the black widows in the theater, and all that kind of stuff. If you remember those stories in the past, hundreds and hundreds of Russians have been killed by Chechens, radical Islam. China, hey, if it comes down to it and there's a holy war, is China going to back the major market or the minor market? Major market. I'm just suggesting... You consider yourself Seventh-day Adventist Christians, most of you. Some of you are from other backgrounds. But for those of you who are Seventh-day Adventist Christians, you've known that the whole world's going to follow the papacy. If you hate Muslims, you're likely to follow with the world. Daniel 11 explains why the world follows the papacy. Same reason they did at the Crusades and the Ottomans. It's the same thing all over again. But he wasn't done with his comment at this point. Here's the rest of it. And then all Protestant Christians around the globe must come into submission to the Pope so we will have a unified Christian world. Do you know what Canada, the Premier of Canada, recently he said, the greatest threat facing Canada is radical Islam? Canada? Yeah, the whole world has this thing in common. They are very concerned about radical Islam. Oh, if you're in a Muslim country and the radicals are killing moderate Muslims all over the place, who's your big threat? Radical Islam. All over the world, radical Islam is a big problem, even in Muslim countries. So, yeah, makes sense. So we have Islam attacking papal-led Christianity, and now we have a pushback, and we have the U.S. counterattack Islam and inner Israel, Palestine, and Islam gets divided three ways. Let's take a look at those three ways. We have one part that escapes, one part of the king of the south escapes, one part is overthrown, which includes Egypt and many countries, and then the third part is following after, Libya and Ethiopia. Now, friends, when you hear the words following after in Daniel 11, you should be thinking towards the end of Revelation where following after shows up too. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. We're at the same point. That's Revelation 13. Now, this is right at the end of the conflict. The Revelation 13 scenario that you think of of the mark of the beast happens right at the end. 
of the third conflict between Islam and Christianity. Now, let's take a closer look. Egypt. We've got Egypt up here in the northeast corner of Africa. It says Egypt goes down. I'm expecting Egypt to go down as a country. Years ago, I said Egypt was going to radicalize. And I was laughed at. Egypt was the one with the peace treaty signed with Israel. Egypt was the one that was firmly connected to NATO and is getting all this military aid from the United States. Now that it's radicalized, it's still getting the aid. <laughs> uh, although we just stopped sending jets this week or so back, uh, temporarily. But anyway, so I said, Egypt is going to radicalize. Well, Egypt is in the process of radicalization. And it's not just as a nation, it's as spiritually as well. We had Arab Spring take over. The Muslim Brotherhood took over after that. And then other forms, branches of radical Islam took two-thirds of the parliament in the elections. Mursi and radical Islam get thrown out of office. Have you noticed all the street demonstrations stopped when Mursi got thrown out? Yeah. They've gotten worse. Because now you've got Morsi supporters and whatever. Have you noticed in the United States, we tend to swing like a pendulum from liberal to conservative? Because the liberals promise all kinds of stuff. You go over here. Oh, remember, uh, you, you pass health care and everybody's medical rates are going to go down. Are you laughing? Because they went up. Promises from politicians aren't worth a lot, are they? And so, would you really want to be a liberal Democrat at the next election when everything they promised in the last two cycles is falling apart? It's going to go the other way, probably. Just based on human nature. That's what we've been doing for a long time. Only now, our pendulum is getting wilder and wilder here in the United States. If you want to see what wild pendulum looks like, watch Egypt. I mean, they're out on the streets and this mobs are killing each other. And so, Moisey had a year to come up with food and jobs for people. He didn't make it. But remember, Islam is deeply ingrained in Egypt, right? Christians are fewer now than there have been in a long time in Egypt. Uh, Christian women are raped on the streets. They're taken as hostages. They're taken out into the Sinai Peninsula. And the hostage holder takes a phone call, if they have a cell phone, and they call home. And they say, give us X amount of dollars. We have your father or whatever. And then they turn on the cattle prods and start torturing them while whoever at home answered the phone hears the screams. How long would you want to put up with that before you left Egypt? That's what's happening in Christianity in Egypt. Um, plus outright killings. It's, it's a pr pretty brutal area for many Christians today. Thankfully, Seventh-day Adventists are doing better than some of the others. By the way, if you're traveling in the Islamic world and somebody asks you if you're a Christian, I would suggest you say that you're a follower of the Isa and a follower of the book and that you're a Seventh-day Adventist you have a better chance of living. <laughs> Say that again. If you're asked, if, if you're a Christian, answer that you are a follower of Isa, that's Jesus, a follower of the book, that's the Bible, 
and that you're a Seventh-day Adventist. What does that say? Because they think of Christians as Roman Catholics who don't follow the Bible. Crusaders that are out to wage holy war against them. And a Seventh-day Adventist who follows the Bible on the day of worship puts you as a totally different category. You don't eat pork. Totally different category. You have a much higher chance of surviving than a crusader. I mean, that's just simple truth. Um, So you have Egypt and many countries that are overthrown. I'm expecting Egypt and many countries to be overthrown. But remember, everything is geopolitical and spiritual. So while Egypt is going down, radical Islam all over the Islamic world is going down. Egypt is the representative of radical Islam. But then we have Libya and Ethiopia. By the way, let me back up. In the old times, in Daniel's day, Libya took in all North Africa, the whole northern part there. Ethiopia took in everything down in the uh, south of Egypt and out to the ocean. Now, Ethiopia is much smaller and so is Libya. But Libyans are far more favorable to NATO powers, Europe, than Egyptians are. As a matter of fact, Libya has oil money and their trading partner is Europe and they're quite friendly. Uh, Not all uh, Libyans are radical. As a matter of fact, Algeria used to be a part of Libya. And recently, when radical Muslims took some hostages in an oil refinery in Algeria, do you remember what the Algerians did? Algerians have no... The Muslim nation, they do not like radical Islam. So what, what do they do? They go into the refinery with their guns blazing. Most of the hostages die. But that wasn't their point. It was okay if they saved hostages. The real point is, if you're a radical in Algeria, you're going to die. We want you to know that. Algeria, Libya are much more favorable towards moderate Islam and the European nations. Egypt is turning their backs on them. The people of Libya and Ethiopia, I mean, Libya and Ethiopia, the majority of them are favorable to the U.S. and Europe. Egypt has turned against in the majority of them. So we have the trends going. Uh, I better keep rolling. Then we have, what, how much time we have left? Zero. I don't have time with zero. We're going to pick up the most important piece of the whole thing next. Those who escape. Within Islam, there is a group who stands for Jesus Christ. We have a remnant that comes out of Islam for Jesus Christ. And that's the next piece that we will cover. We have radical Islam goes down. Moderate Islam follows the king of the north. They follow the papal system. Don't kill us, we'll follow you. And then there's the part that escapes. Edom, Moab, and Ammon, those that are the remnant out of Islam. By the way, I'm going to close with this comment. Thank you for the zero. I'm going to close with this one. No, I'll just leave it there. Because my mind just went blank on the zero. So I should stop right where I wrote blank. (laughs) I'll figure that out and share it with you tomorrow. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. 
And Lord, I thank you that you have the best of all in store as the gospel explodes across this globe. Come soon, we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And literally, that's what we look at next, is how the gospel explodes across this world. 1040 window goes from being the hardest place to reach to the place where it explodes. It's going to be fun.